We've been reading through the book of 2 Corinthians these past few Wednesdays, and it's been good. It's been wonderful. Sometimes it, it doesn't feel like, um, sometimes reading 2 Corinthians, it doesn't sound like a, doesn't feel like a bumper sticker message all the time. Sometimes there's some real deep uh, stuff that, that, that you have to process and work through. But like I said, thank God we've got a teacher, amen? Thank God we've got somebody uh, who leads us and guides us into all the truth. And thank God that there's nothing that's impossible for him. And so as we read through 2 Corinthians, I want to remind you of some of the background. Just so you know, 2 Corinthians is, of course, uh, just, as, just as, as all the other books in the Bible are, it's inspired by God and it's profitable for you. It's, it's able to do things in us and, and cause things to come alive that haven't been alive before. Uh, but it also is very personal. If you've been with us in the past few Wednesday nights, you've noticed that uh, the writer of this particular letter, the Apostle Paul, has had to at times bare his heart and bare his soul to the church at Corinth. There's been times where he's been challenged, and there's been times where he's been criticized. And, uh, you know, this isn't just a letter, uh, one side of an argument. We know that the Holy Spirit inspired this letter, and so this is a, a response an apostolic response to a church that needed to hear it. And so there are things that we can grab from this on two sides. Like I've said before, you're a minister. Uh, in whatever area God's put you in, you've got some degree of ministry. The Bible says, and it's going to say it later in this very book, that you're ministers of reconciliation. So there's a part to that. And then you also see it from the other side of people that have been partakers in ministry, that have been under ministry, that, that uh, you see it from both sides. You see it from Paul's side, maybe you see it from the church in Corinth. And I pray that tonight as we read this, you'll be blessed by it, and you'll get something you, didn't, you haven't seen before. You'll hear something maybe that uh, comes out in a new way. And you know what? If you knew all this going into it, I believe you'll be blessed just the same. It doesn't hurt to hear something again, does it? 2 Corinthians chapter, two, uh, chapter 3. We left off in chapter 2. The last verse we read last Wednesday night in chapter 2 was, was when he said, We're not like many. We're not peddling the word of God. <laughs> you see, there had been a group of people that came to the church in Corinth who had uh, attempted to win everybody over, and they had fancy words, and they kind of had a, a bit of a show to them. They had a little bit of flash to them, and they criticized Paul. All through this letter, he's responding to criticism. And I don't want you to walk out of this feeling like you've just, you know, heard an argument or something. You certainly don't want to hear it that way. But there's been some criticism here. And he says, these guys have come in, and, and you'll find out they came in to, to get something from people instead of give something to people. That's a sign of true ministry. A, a true minister will never come to get something from you, but always to bring something to you. In fact, the Apostle Paul said in this very letter, he said, when I wanted to come to you, I, I wanted to come back on my way back through. I wanted to come visit you guys so that you might twice receive a blessing from God. You see, the reason he wanted to visit them was not so that they could give him a big offering or not so that uh, they could applaud him or, or give him something to be proud about. The reason he wanted to visit them was so that they'd be blessed by that visit. A true minister wants to bring something to you, not take something from you. And so there's a battle between those two forces. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? What does that mean? Because he says, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need as some letters of commendation to you or from you? The point is, do I have to prove that I am who, who I say I am? Do I have to prove that I'm a minister to you? And these guys who'd come through, these other apostles, had come through with, 
glowing recommendations. They had, they had really promoted themselves. I imagine if they were here today, they'd have the best websites out there. I imagine they'd have the, the, the book on the back cover and have all these people that say, you should read this book. But he, the Apostle Paul says, do we need to commend ourselves to you? Do you guys need letters proving we are who we say we are? He says, if that's the case, if, in verse 2 he says this. He says, you are our letter. That's a big thing. In other words, what he's saying is, do you need me to provide a letter proving I am a real apostle, or proving I'm a powerful apostle, proving I'm a good speaker? Do you need that again? Because he says, guess what? You're our letter. You're our proof of ministry. You're the proof that what we're saying actually is true. He says, you're our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men. That's powerful, isn't it? That's a little bit threatening to think that you might be the proof that whoever's been ministering to you is from God and has been preaching the word of God. He says, if you need proof, you just need to look at you. You're our proof. Now, this is somebody that believes in the power of the gospel. This is somebody that doesn't just expect to get up there, preach a nice sermon, everybody goes to the Pizza Hut buffet and forgets about it. This is somebody that believes that this message that we're preaching actually has the power to change your life. And I believe this. I believe that if we're just hearing a nice message, it makes us feel better for a few hours, or it makes us, holds us over for the week, and we feel like we got our spiritual dose and we don't know how powerful this really is. This is the Word of God. When we minister to each other with the Word of God and the Spirit of God, something should change in us. Something should be different from when we first came in. He says, you're the proof that we have a real ministry. You're the proof that the gospel we preach was not in vain. You're the proof that this really works. You're the proof that we're the real deal. And that says it from two sides. From one side, I see it as the Apostle Paul might see it, saying, I, I, I'm not trying to be fancy. I'm not trying to bring big letters that prove who I am. I'm just telling the world, look at these people. Have they changed? Look at yourselves. Are you different? From the other side, you might say that's a bit of pressure, right? What if, what if a minister or a pastor that you've been under for a while was telling everybody come see these people in my church come visit them come have a meal with them and you'll see whether or not I'm for real that seems like a lot of pressure doesn't it instead of me saying come come eat with me for a while and you'll see that I'm for real he's saying go see these people go look at their lives go look at who they were now you realize that these people came out of Corinth they were in a pagan society. They worshipped idols. And so there was a dramatic change in their life. The proof was seen by their neighbors. I mean, this, is, this was not like a colony in the middle of nowhere. These people were in a big city that had a lot of issues and had a lot of problems. And they came out. The Bible says in, in, in one place, he says that these people turned from idols to serve the living God. And so you've got to understand that that their neighbors are noticing something different about them. It's not just like their Facebook chat status changed and everybody says, oh, wait, they got a new religion. Well, that's cool. No, there was a dramatic shift. I mean, if you look at the gospel being preached in Ephesus, I realize that Corinth and Ephesus aren't the same thing, but they had some similarities. 
you look at the gospel being preached in Ephesus, it was such a dramatic change that the economy of Ephesus was in danger because it was, the economy was being held up by how many people bought little idols. And the silversmiths and the craftsmen were worried that their whole trade would, go into, would just go into disrepute because these guys got saved. Their, the fact that they got born again changed their city, changed the economy, changed the way everybody acted around them. The fact that they got born again messed with the status quo. It changed the way everybody thought about them. So in Corinth, you see this church, it's not just a, a hobby. It's not just a pastime. They're a letter. And watch what he says. You are our letter written in our hearts. Thank God that you have people. Thank God for ministers who have that kind of attachment to the people God called them to. He says, you're a letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men. And let's keep reading. And we'll go back to that thought in a minute. Being manifested, and what does the word manifested mean? It means uncovered, revealed. Being manifested that you are a letter of Christ. You see, so even though Paul and his fellow apostles were instruments and channels of that message being preached to them. Ultimately, they weren't the ones writing the letter. They weren't the ones saying, this is what I believe, you believe this too. Ultimately, it was Christ writing his own letter. They were a letter written by Christ, cared for by us. Now, I love that because that shows us a proper relationship in the church. See, it's not a man or a woman that's dominating and manipulating you and causing you to believe like they do. Instead, it's Christ himself that's changed you. It's Christ himself that's implanted his word under your hearts. It's Christ himself that has left his thumbprint on you. And yet, you're not alone. You're cared for. And in this relationship, even though their letter was written by Christ, it was cared for by these apostles. It was cared for by Paul. He cared for them that much. You can look in the pastoral letters at the end of the New Testament. You can look at Titus and First and Second Timothy and, and discover what it means to care for somebody, as the Scripture says. A care for somebody as a pastor or care for somebody as an apostle. It means more than just preaching. It means that you really look at their lives and you, and you, and you lift them up when they need to be lifted up. You, you kick them in the, the rear end if they need to be kicked in the rear end. You nudge them when they need to be nudged. You encourage them when they need to be encouraged. The Word was planted. The Bible says, you watch what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3. He said that one planted, one watered, but God gave the growth. But did you notice that even though God gave the growth, it took a human being to plant and to water? Sometimes we just like to be all fatalistic and take ourselves out of the equation and just say, well, if God wants to do it, he's going to do it. But guess what? The scripture tells us very clearly and shows us very cl clearly that when God wants to do something, he uses his people to do it. Can God do it? Absolutely. Will he do it? Yes, he will. And will he use you to do it? Probably, if you're willing and you're able. And so it took somebody to plant. It took somebody to water. You know, watering is caring for something. He said, you're written by Christ. You're a letter of Christ. You're cared for. By us, written not with ink, wow, but with the spirit of the living God. Can I ask you a question? Is ink permanent? You may say it's permanent, right? We buy permanent pens, but, but you, you all have seen ink fade away. 
You've seen it get wet. You've seen it do things. You've seen it tear. I mean, you've seen the paper tear that the ink wrote on. But ink's not as permanent as being written on by the Spirit of the living God. I love what Peter says. He says that, uh, that, you've been, that the seed that's been planted in you, the Word of God, was an imperishable, incorruptible seed, which means it's not going away. It's not, you can't destroy it. You can't put it down. You can't quench it. And so here he says that you are cared for by us. Your, your, your letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. That's big, isn't it? Because that kind of changes the way I imagine what church is supposed to look like. It, it changes the way I receive the word when it's being preached. It changes the way I receive from somebody else speaking into my life when I realize that every time you've sat there and you've heard the word of God read, that the spirit of God was writing something on your heart. If you let him. He was writing, he was engraving on you his ways, his word, that you've been, you've been marked, you've been tattooed, you've been changed. That's why you never just let the message that you read when you go home and you open up your Bible or, or you hear here at church or you have a conversation with somebody and they bring it up. You never let that just stay in your brain. You never just let that stay up here in your head. Because if it just stays there, it's not changing anything. You've been convinced of something. You, maybe you've been argued into something, but it's nothing more than a philosophy. And philosophies fade. Philosophies are altered by time and space and culture. But you know what never changes is when the Holy Spirit himself writes on your heart. And many of you know this. Many of you have experienced this. There's been things that God's done in you that maybe you can't even put into words, but you know you've been marked. You know you've been changed. This is the power of the gospel. It's the power of the word of God. It's, it's, it's really the reason that I still get up here and preach because honestly, if this wasn't happening, it wouldn't be worth the time. But knowing that when the word of God is preached and the Holy Spirit is there, that people are indelibly marked and changed, that's awesome. And then you can say, look at these people. You want proof that Jesus is alive? Yeah, we could go buy a book from the store that tells you some archaeological evidence. I could go and quote historians to you, even secular historians that back up that Jesus was a historical figure. You could prove different things in different means, but do you know the ultimate proof that Jesus is alive? The proof back then, 2,000 years ago, the proof that Jesus was alive was not that there was a grave somewhere that somebody could dig up and find out there was no body. The proof that Jesus was alive were that there were 12 men and then many more, and women too, who were so marked by seeing him alive from the dead that though they had been hiding and cowardly, you know, kept themselves in a corner so that nobody would find them, the moment he showed himself to them, they were so changed that they waited in a city that hated them. They waited until the Holy Spirit came. And when the Holy Spirit came, they got up, in front of the thousands of people who could put them to death just like they put their master to death. And they stood up and they boldly declared the word of God. The proof that Jesus was alive was that these people saw something that changed them. And they were so convinced of what they saw 
that when it became inconvenient to believe what they believed, they still believed it. When they were beaten, they still believed it. When they were threatened with death, okay, guys, if you're faking it, if you're making up this resurrection thing, it's gone too far, right? Come on, a scam's only good enough while it's still doing you some good, right? If this is a scam, give it up. It's not working anymore. But they couldn't deny, as Peter said, as they threatened him one more time, you better not ever preach in the name of Jesus. And Peter says, we can't help but speak about what we've seen and heard. See, they were so convinced. Because, guys, it wasn't just a specter that they saw. It wasn't just an image in a mirror, like somebody stood in the bathroom and said, Jesus, 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 and they saw his mirror show up. No, they spent 40 days with him. I mean, this wasn't just like, I think I saw him. I think I saw him, too. Like the girls in junior high. It's like, I think I saw him. I think I saw him, too. No, this was real. 40 days, he made breakfast for them. Fish for breakfast, not my idea of a good breakfast, but he still did it. He let them touch, or at least Thomas, he let them touch his fingers. He took, and this may seem awkward to you, but he took his disciples and he did mouth to mouth with them. He breathed breath into them. You may have skipped over that part. Might have seemed weird, might have seemed awkward at the time. But he breathed his very breath into them. And he said, receive my spirit. In fact, Thomas was the only guy who wasn't there, which maybe gives us room to give him a pass when he says, I want to touch the hands. I want to feel the holes. So you see, they were so changed by Jesus being alive that the world around them couldn't deny that something had happened. Now, the greatest proof in 2013 that Jesus is alive is not found in a textbook. Thank God for the textbook. Thank God for Josh McDowell's evidence that demands a verdict. Thank God for books like that 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 show you historical and archaeological proof that Jesus was real and that he was alive. But guess what? That's not going to convince everybody. The greatest proof that Jesus is alive is you. The greatest proof Jesus is alive is a life that is just undeniably is a life that you can't deny something happened. I was blind, but now I see. I was dead, but now I live. I was lost, but now I'm found. I'm looking out at some people that I know some of your stories. And I know who you were, who you, at least I knew, you know, the people around you that knew who you were. What they might have said about you before and what they know about you now. It's pretty hard to deny that something changed. And what it is, is you've become a letter. The Holy Spirit himself has engraved his name and his ways and his word on your heart. This is what God promised through Jeremiah hundreds and hundreds of years before this moment. He said, I'm making a new covenant with you where my spirit will be on you. And my word will be in your mouth. And you won't just have my word written on tablets or written on pieces of paper, but I will write my law on your heart. He says, you won't have to tell your brother, know the Lord, for all will know me. This is big. This is a big thought that that this gospel that we're hearing is real enough to change us in such a way 
that we are read and known by all men. Now, maybe that makes you nervous, right? Maybe it makes some people nervous to say, I don't want everybody reading my mail. I don't want everybody looking at me. Sometimes we say, you know, I, I just always feel so judged. I feel judged by everybody. Well, I don't want you to feel judged in the sense that you feel condemned. But do you know when somebody looks at your life, somebody that you used to know, somebody that you used to hang out with, and they look at your life and they find that it's different, they've just judged you? There are good judgments, right? They've judged that something is different. It's okay to be read by everybody. It's okay to be known. If you're afraid of being known, well, you've got to just go back and say, have I been changed? Has, is this gospel real? Is the word of God real? Because if it is, it's going to change me. I've got to let it change me. And because I believe in the power of the cross, and I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit, and if I believe these things, I shouldn't be afraid to go back to those people that knew me before and say, look at me now. And we, we try to be humble, and we try to be modest and say, oh, don't look at me, look at Jesus. But how are they going to see Jesus if they can't look at you? Right? What did Paul say? It's no longer I that lives, but Christ that lives in me. You want to see him? You need to look at somebody like me who's been changed by him, who has him living on the inside, who has the Spirit of God in him. When Peter and John went to the gate called Beautiful and they see this man begging, what did they say? Look on us. They didn't say, don't look at us. We're too dirty. We're not worthy. They said, look on us. You see, they knew that when he looked at them, there was something behind them. There was something more to it than just two guys. And they didn't say, silver and gold have we none, but we can pray for you. They didn't say, silver and gold we don't have, but we can ask God if maybe he can do something about your circumstance. They said, silver and gold we don't have any, but what we have, what we have, we give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. How changed were those two guys? Talk about John. I mean, this is a guy, you remember one of his first big starring quotes, one of his big things that he says with him and his brother, going as, as Jesus goes through a village, these guys were known as the sons of thunder, and as Jesus goes through a village that doesn't really like what he has to say, James and John have an idea, Lord, why don't you just call down fire and, and crisp everybody, just burn everybody. And Jesus, of course, says, you don't know what spirit you're of. That guy, John, became known as the disciple, the apostle of love. He writes the, the, the book in the Bible that says love more than any other letter. It's shorter, but it's got way more instances and, and, and quotations of love than any other letter in the Bible. Here's the guy that's been changed. And you can't deny he's different. He's a letter. He writes letters, but he is a living letter, a living epistle. Do you recall when Jesus said, in fact, let's, let's just read this. You can hold your place in 2 Corinthians for a moment. But if you can just turn to the book of Luke, or sorry, Matthew.
Matthew 5. Many of you could quote Matthew 5 by memory. Love Matthew 5. It's Jesus teaches. It's some of the longest, longest spurts of teaching that Jesus taught that we had right written down. And when Jesus says this, I mean, it, it's it changes how you see yourself. It changes how you view the church. In Matthew 5:13, he says, "You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again?" It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Then he says, you are the light of the world. And you'll remember before this, he said, I'm the light of the world. He that believes in me does not walk in darkness but has light evermore, right? He's the one that said that. But now he's saying, you are the light of the world. Obviously, something's been passed on. Obviously, something's been transferred. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. I want you to see that word set. It didn't just accidentally get on a hill. It was set there. The purpose of the city on that hill is to be seen. It's meant to be seen. They're not trying to hide it. They're not saying, don't look at us. Just look at the stars. No, they, 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 they want to be seen. Look at, look at this in the next verse, 15. He says, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all those who are in the house. Now, I want you to consider. You know that you have the light of the world living in you. And so he goes ahead and says, you're the light of the world, right? We know that. Now, consider the fact that you're not just a light. You are a light that he took and placed on a lampstand. What is a lampstand? It takes that light that may be seen by a few people. And it puts it in a place where it gives light to all who are in the house. So you're meant to give light to a lot of other people who don't have light. You're meant to be a light in places where it's otherwise very dark. And you shouldn't be afraid of the lampstand. Because the one who put you there is the Lord himself. He put you on the lampstand. Now if you say, I should not be on the lampstand. I am not something people should look at then you need to ask yourself, what in the world am I allowing my life to show? Because if I have the light of the world in me, and, I, and Ephesians 5 says, you are light, now walk as children of light. If that's what the Bible says about me, if he's done something in me that changed me from just, a, just another part of darkness to an, a light walking around, and he thought that that was important enough to stick on a stand for everyone to see, then I better believe in the power of the gospel in my life. And if things need to change, trust God to change them. Don't just ignore them. Address them knowing that the same God that saved you is the God that's sanctifying you. And that Holy Spirit that's working on you is able to make you fit for the lampstand. And so don't hide from opportunities to shine. Don't, don't, don't be worried when people look at you. You see, because shame has always been attached to sin. There was no shame in the garden until they sinned. And when Jesus bore our sin, he took our guilt and our shame. So you should not be ashamed when you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. If there's still something to be ashamed of, you need to turn from it and turn to the light. 
Because whether you like it or not, you're being looked at. And we need to stop thinking of that like it's a bad thing. That's an opportunity. Do you realize the threat to many of the churches in the book of Revelation was that their lampstand would be removed? Like that was the bad thing that would happen. Jesus doesn't say to them, if you don't get it together, I'm going to put you on a lampstand for everybody to see and point and laugh at you. No, he says, if you don't change this, I'll have to take the lampstand away. I'll have to take the stand away. And what was that lampstand to them? That was their influence, their, their light to their community around them. God had given them, God had opened doors for them. God had given them influence where they didn't have it before. The lampstand is a good thing. The only part you play is letting the light shine. Not making the light shine. Because it's not your light. Letting it shine. Watch what he says in verse 16. He says, let. Let your light shine. You don't have to create it. You don't have to formulate it. You don't have to act like you have light. Can you fake having light? No, you can't. You walk around <laughs> in Bud Miller Park with a flashlight that's batteries burnt out, and you tell everybody, ooh, look how bright it is. Oh, look what all I can see. Look at the bugs. Do you see the raccoon in the bush? They're not going to buy it. They're not believing you. You go, oh, look at this. Look at, oh, it's so bright. Oh, keep it away from my eyes. No one buys it. It's obvious whether you have light or not, right? So you can't fake it. You can't make it up. Either he put it in you and you're letting it shine or he put it in you and you're covering it up, but he's the one that puts the light in you. And he says, let your light shine. Before who? Men, people. He doesn't just say, get in a closet, shut the door, lock it, let your light shine to God. Because only the, the only one I really, uh, only one that really needs to look at my life is God. He's the one that judges the heart. He is the one that judges your heart. But he says here, let, let your light shine before people. When he says men, he doesn't just mean males. He means people, humans. Let your light shine before them in front of their eyes in such a way. What is that such a way? I think it means... We're, if we're looking at it in context, according to the verse before it, letting your light shine in such a way probably means letting it be on that lampstand and shining as far as it can go. Letting your light shine in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. You want proof that this isn't about you? You see, if this was just you turning your life around through willpower, or just making a New Year's resolution. If this was about how strong you were to turn your life around or how good you could be, then no one would glorify God. Everyone would glorify you because you'd be the one that did all the work, right? The one who does the work gets the credit. Is that right? When, when we talk about God being glorified, we're saying God is getting credit. He's, get, he's, he's receiving the credit for this. So if you're the one doing all the work, he does not get glory from that. The reason he gets glory is because it's going to be so apparent that it was so far beyond what you could do and so far beyond what you thought up and so far beyond what you were able to do that somehow you surrendered something to God so that that spirit inside of you did something you couldn't do, said something you couldn't say, changed what you couldn't change 
so that the world sees it and goes, God must have done something here. Now, if you were honest, I, I believe you are. If you're honest, I think a lot of people look at your life, some of you, people look at your life and go, okay, I don't know what I believe, but I know they didn't turn their life around. There, there must be some sort of higher power. There must be some God because I can't explain how different they are. I can't explain how they changed like this. I knew them before, and I can't, I can't, God must have done this. Now, they may not even know who God is, but they know that you didn't do this. It's so big, God must have done it. Thank God. Which is why you don't need to be freaked out by this thought. Because it's God who does the work. Philippians says, For it is God who is at work in you, both to do, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. It's God that's at work in you. In that same book, he says this, that God put us in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation in which we shine like stars in the universe, like lights in a dark place. Don't be afraid of people watching. Don't be afraid to be seen. If we turn back to 2 Corinthians 3, what does he say? You are a letter written by Christ, cared for by us, known, and read by all men. God wants to do something in you that's so genuine and so sincere and so authentic that you can be known and still glorify God. It's a shame that so many people figure if God's to be glorified, they better hide. If God's going to be glorified, I better cover up because I believe in the power of the resurrection in your life I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit in your life that if you'll let him he's able to change you in such a way he's able to renew you in such a way he's able to breathe life in you in such a way that you can be known and not have to hide you could be known and read and glorify God isn't that wonderful don't be afraid of the lampstand don't be afraid of everybody looking at you. Don't be afraid to be judged. Like I said, not judged in the sense that you're condemned, but judged in the sense that somebody looks at you and makes a judgment. You're not who you used to be. Or maybe if they've just met you, there's something different about you. How many, just show of hands, how many people have ever had somebody say to you, I don't know what it is, but there's something different about you? We hear that a lot, don't we? Now, those of you that didn't raise your hand, I don't want you to get beat up about that. You've probably heard something similar. Many of you have told me stories, and, and we've all experienced it, where somebody says, I don't know what it is about you, but there's something about you. Have you ever walked in a room and immediately knew that person's a believer? I'm not trying to be all mystical here. Oh, come on, there's nothing wrong being a little spiritual. <laughs> we are believers, aren't we? We believe in the supernatural. We believe in this stuff. And there's just that deep calling out to deep that you automatically know. That person's a believer. There's something about them. And I don't know them. I haven't seen them do 10 spiritual jumping jacks. I just know that person is different. And you've had unbelievers say that to you. You're different. What is it with you? 
You know what it is? They're reading you. And they're reading a letter that you didn't write. We're so used to writing our own story, especially now in, in the age of social networking. We, For instance, Facebook. I, not, I know not all of you are on Facebook. I'm not telling you to get on it either. But on something like Facebook or Twitter, what you do is you, uh, you present yourself. You put the pictures on Facebook that you want people to see. You put your favorite quotes in there that make you sound smart. You say things that you want people to hear you say. You don't use it as an opportunity to just expose your whole life. You use it as an opportunity to show your best face, right? I mean, most people aren't, aren't posting pictures of them on their worst hair day. Women with no makeup, men with, you know, a black eye. Well, actually, some of the men are proud of that black eye. <laughs> but what we, what we do is we manufacture what, what we want everybody to see. We, we put out a profile. We put out, if you, I want you to think I'm this person. Whether we're consciously or subconsciously doing it, we're presenting something to the world, and we want to present our good side. It's like, it's like we're dating or something. You know, we're, we're saying, this is my best face. These are the best things I say. These are the best pictures of me. This is who I am. I'm better than if you knew me in real life. But here, you can't really fake that in real life. You can only do it for so long. Whether you know it or not, you're being read. And if when you hear that, you're being watched, you're being read. Most people, when they hear those two things, they get nervous. You need to get a revelation of who Jesus is inside of you. Because if you hear that and you want to hide, you don't know how powerful that light is inside of you, and you need to let that shine. Our instinct, when you say somebody's watching you, is to go and hide. But I'm going to tell you, when you get a revelation of who Jesus is, Christ in me, the hope of glory, and you let him shine, you're going to say, you're going to hear those words, somebody's watching you, and you go, good, I hope they get born again. I hope they see how good God is. I hope they see the goodness of God in the land of the living. I hope they know the love of God just by knowing me. You shouldn't be afraid of it. Don't worry if you are. If you are, and right now you say, I don't want to be seen. I, I, I don't think my life is worthy of that. That's just, don't take long to surrender it to God. Because you know what? There is nothing to be ashamed of when you have a life that was a complete mess and you're letting God put it together. There is nothing to be ashamed of of saying, I fell down, watch me get up. We, should, we shouldn't obstinately and rebelliously stay pose ourselves and say, you know what, God, I, I know you want me to do that, but I'd rather do it this way. If that's the life you're living, I don't want people to look at you either. But if you genuinely say, Lord, I realize I'm flawed at times, but I know who I am in you. And I know you're able to take what, what I give, and you're able to do so much more with it. And if I fall, I shall arise. I'm going to get up again. When you have that kind of attitude, you're open to him. You're, you're hearing from him. You're open to his spirit speaking to you. You're not rebellious. You're, you're, you're willing to learn. You're willing to grow. When you have that, it's not a bad thing to be watched. You know, I was a pastor's kid. 
Now, my son's going to be a pastor's kid. I know what it's like. But I also know what it's like. I had a lot of other friends that were pastor's kids who went crazy off the tracks. You know, there's a lot of pressure on that pastor's kid. But some of them, and you can't always blame the parents. Obviously, people have to make their own choices, right? But some of them, I watched what happened. They heard something preached up, up, up on the stage, and they didn't see it at home. It created a disconnect. It created a part of them that said, this isn't real. You know what I saw at home? I saw parents that didn't always get it right. But when they got it wrong, I saw them repent. I saw them open to God. I've told you before, I, got, I remember getting up in the middle of the night and hearing my dad who didn't know anybody else was awake, in the kitchen, praying, singing to God. Changed my life. And you know what? They did mess up from time to time. Not as much as I did, but they did. When they did, they were quick to repent. That taught me more than I think it ever would have taught me if they'd lived a perfect life. Taught me how to fall down and get back up again. It taught me to be quick to respond to the Spirit of God to be quick to repent and to be quick to receive the love of God and believe it. In verse 3, or sorry, verse 4, we've already read verse 3. Look at this. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. So is, there, is your confidence, when you're saying, everybody look at me, is your confidence in you? If it is, Nobody should look at you, because that's arrogance. And pride comes before what? A fall. You do not want to fall in front of everybody. I've done that. I've fallen in some pretty public places. I went through a stage as a kid where I thought I was straight out of Last of the Mohicans. I thought I was um, a warrior. And so in front of Mount Rushmore, in front of of the Capitol in Washington, D.C. I decided those are good times to try out my tricks. Try a spin jump off the steps. And I did a lot of falling in front of people. Very public places, on stone where it doesn't feel so good. And uh, please don't use that against me. <laughs> but <laughs> pride does come from a fall. It's not fun to fall in front of what does it say? Our confidence is not in ourselves. Our confidence through Christ to God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves. You hear that? Not that we are adequate in ourselves. We're not adequate in ourselves. Hey, you thought you were the only one. Apparently, even the Apostle Paul said this. We're not adequate by ourselves. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. But our adequacy is from who? From God. Our adequacy is from God. So the next time I say to you, God's putting you on a lampstand to shine. He puts you in a, in a place at your workplace with your family in the community to shine. The next time you hear that, you say to yourself, I'm not adequate in myself, but my adequacy comes from God. Verse 6, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. 
For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. We'll talk about that next week. But this is a big thought. He made you a letter to be read, to be read and known. It's good to be read and it's good to be known. It's good to be seen. Because how else will the world see the light of the gospel? How else will the world see the light of Jesus if not through you? You are the greatest proof that Jesus is alive. You are the greatest proof. You're the proof that any minister that ever ministered to you was the real deal. You're the proof that the Word of God is what it says it is. You're the proof that the Spirit of God is not just an idea, but a force. The very Spirit of God living inside of you. You're the proof. You're the letter. But the letter's not written by you. You don't have to be eloquent. The letter's not written by me. The letter was written by God. The letter was written by the Holy Spirit onto your very heart. Engraved onto your heart. Read by all men. Known by all men. Be ready to be exposed to the world. Once again, we hear the word exposed. What do we want to do? The instinct when you hear the word exposed is often to say, give me that bushel, give me that basket, put it over my head. But if you really trust that Christ in you is the hope of glory and he's able to make you what you couldn't be, He's able to do in you what you couldn't do. He's able to shine through if you let him. And you won't be afraid of the stand. Because you'll know the world won't see me, they'll see him. Thank God. Examine your life. Know that you will be watched, right? You're preaching something. I'd be aware of what you're preaching. You're writing something to the world. What are they reading when they see you? But when you hear that, don't go back and try to create the, your story yourself. When you hear that, know that the work is God's. The power is God's. The light is His. The truth is His. And so if He's going to do anything in you, you've got to get out of the way. You're not the one fixing you. You're not the one making your life presentable. Your adequacy comes from Him. The light comes from Him. Amen? Would you stand with me and let's pray and let's just open our hearts to God that what we heard he's able to do. Amen? If he's able to tell you, if he's able to say it to you, he's able to do it in you. He's faithful to his word. He's faithful to his covenant. So, Father, here we are, sons and daughters of the living God. Your people, called by your name, we understand that we were not worthy of that title. We were not a people. We had not received mercy, but now we've received mercy. We were not a people but now we are the people of God. Lord, I realize I'm in a room full of people that have shone, their li shone that light into the world. And I realize there's people in the room tonight that consider themselves unworthy and inadequate to be a representative of Jesus Christ. Lord, I'm asking you right now to strengthen their hearts and to give them a revelation of who you are if they've been putting all the confidence in themselves, that they begin to put some confidence in you. In fact, all the confidence in you. Guys, I want to say this tonight. I want you to give God an opportunity to do what you can't do. If you've been trying for a long time to be the kind of Christian that the world should see, and you've been trying and you feel like you haven't been doing it, I want you to commit to God right now that you let Him do His work in you. 
maybe you'll just say, I've been trying, it hasn't been working. I'm going to let God do something in me that's going to be a miracle. I'm going to let his light shine in me. I'm going to let his word shine in me. Father, I, I'm so thankful for these people. I pray, Lord, that just as you took their guilt and their shame, you said there is now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. So if there are people right now that are feeling that condemnation, that guilt, that shame, would you wash them clean, wash their just just overflow and, and, and just cover them with the knowledge of your righteousness in them, the knowledge of your spirit in them, the knowledge of your goodness in them, that we'd walk not after the flesh but after the spirit, that we would not walk as those in darkness, but we'd walk as children of light. Thank you, Jesus, for, your, for adopting us, for taking us in. May we be that light set on a lampstand that shines and shines and shines. It can't be put out, can't be muted, can't be quenched. But Father, we know that just as we're ministering in the sphere that you've given us, that sphere is being enlarged by you to reach more and more and to show and say, taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Bless you. We love you. And uh, just continue to pray for that team in the Philippines.